Summers, an Australian Test Cricket History Podcast. Season 2, Episode 10, 1909 in England, War and Peace. Following on from the success against the previous English touring team, the 1908-09 season would play a pivotal role in determining who would make the side to tour England in 1909. This would be the first tour under the sole control of the Australian Board of Control, and they were looking to make up for the losses they had suffered from bringing out the previous English side. As such, they were hoping to pick players who would be subservient to the board's interests. This provided some difficulty, as most of the leading players, including Noble, Hill, Trumper and Armstrong, were sceptical of the board and wished to continue to have as much player control over tours as possible. Despite the tension, the Shield season played out as normal, returning to the full home-and-away fixtures that the tournament had been for most of its existence. Queensland had attempted to join, but the vote to decide their entry was lost 7-5. The Shield season was a high-scoring one, Vernon Ransford would score four centuries compiling 720 runs, a Shield record, whilst Noble and Warren Bardsley of New South Wales would score two each. South Australia's O'Connor led the way with 26 wickets, double the next best performers of Cotter and Hazlitt. It was also a very even season, with each team picking up at least one win. After having their streak broken, New South Wales regained the Shield, winning three of their four games. They scored 713 runs in their innings victory over South Australia, whilst in the final match they piled on 815 against Victoria to confirm their Shield win. Following the completion of the Shield season, two matches were held between Australian 11s and the rest, one in Sydney and one in Melbourne. The Australian 11s mostly featured players who had played against England in 1907-08, while the rest included Test players such as Hopkins, Hazlitt and Gers, as well as featuring up-and-coming players like Charlie Calloway and Bill Whitty. Warren Bardsley played for the rest in Sydney before playing for Australia in Melbourne, where he scored a magnificent 264 and all but sealed his place on the tour. This second match also acted as a benefit for Monty Noble, raising £2,000 for the great all-rounder. Meanwhile, the selectors were meaning to choose the touring side. Idale and McAllister remained as selectors, whilst Hill replaced Darling. The board planned to exert control over the tour, including in the selection of captain and manager, decisions the players had made in the past. However, during the first trial match, the preeminent players had met and announced to the press they had chosen Frank Laver as tour manager. Laver had been the well-respected manager on the 1905 tour and was seen as fiercely supportive of the players' rights. The board had attempted to side out him by not selecting him for the trial matches, but the players trumped the board by announcing the decision, making it impossible for the board to overrule without causing a scandal and leading to top players withdrawing from the tour. The board wanted to have some control. With Noble the unanimous choice as captain, and he being no friend of the board, McAllister chose himself to both tour and to be his deputy. Hill in particular was opposed to the selection of McAllister, saying that at 40 he was past his best and not suited to English conditions. With Iredale in support though, McAllister was chosen to tour. McAllister also declared himself treasurer, hoping that he could have some control on the finances this way. This was approved by the board with a decision that was only decided by a single vote. McAllister would never be trusted by the rest of the players, and Labor would deliberately hide the financial results from him so that he couldn't accurately report these to the board. The big absence from the tour ended up being Clem Hill. His marriage in 1905 had already been punctuated by one long tour of England, and he didn't wish to be away from his wife for another extended period of time. He also distrusted the board's promises with regards to tour payments. Noble was therefore joined by Trumper, Gregory, Laver, Armstrong, Cotter, Hopkins and Carter, all who had toured England before, although Carter hadn't played a test in his previous tour of 1902. 
McAllister, Hardigan, O'Connor, Ransford and McCartney had all played test cricket before, but were on their first tours of England. The potential debutants included Bardsley, left-arm medium-fast bowler Bill Whitty from South Australia, and Walter Karkeek, the backup wicketkeeper from Victoria. Karkeek was seen as a surprise choice by many, as other keepers, including Woodford of South Australia and Dodds of Tasmania, were seen as far superior keepers. It was suspected they were selected as he was a friend of McAllister and providing the support in his battles with the players. The players' suspicions about the board were confirmed when, just before departing, they went back on their original deal of not interfering with the tourist's financial terms by demanding 5% of the first £6,000 earned and 12.5% of all profits above that. Furthermore, instead of sharing profits evenly between all, the nine newcomers were offered a lump sum of £400, much lower than they could have earned if profits were shared. The board also refused the requests of Noble and Labor to extend credit to players who needed money for extra playing gear. Despite this change, the tour proceeded, although Noble and Labor would do their utmost to protect the rights of the players from then onwards and worked against the machinations of the board. The team departed Australia and arrived in England in late April. Five tests were scheduled amongst 39 matches overall, although England retained the three-day limit on tests as opposed to the Australian method of playing matches to their conclusion. Six first-class matches preceded the first test to be played at Edgbaston. The first match came against Nottingham, a team that featured three of the players who had played on the 1907-08 tour for England, Gunn, Hardstaff and the captain Jones. Despite a century for Jones, the Australians won by innings thanks to a fine all-round effort from Armstrong, who scored a century and took eight wickets for the match. Another comfortable win came against Northamptonshire by nine wickets. Australia then scored 609 against Essex, including 219 from Bardsley and 174 from Ransford. Bardsley innings ended due to a run-out, where his partner Trumpet deliberately left him hanging so that other players could have a bat. Essex managed to hang on for a draw nine down after following on. However, Australian fortunes declined from this point. They suffered their first loss when they went down to Surrey by five runs, before losing to a powerful MCC side by three wickets. The final match before the first test was a draw against Oxford. These results contributed to a belief amongst the English public and media that this was a weaker Australian team in the past years, especially due to the absence of Darling and Hill. Many players had not yet found form either. When deciding on their first Test eleven, Laver, McAllister, Karkeek, Hopkins and Hardigan were all left out, meaning Test debuts for Bardsley and Witty. Meanwhile, the English were expected to be improved by the availability of many of the players who had refused to tour the previous series. Only Hobbs, Jones, Rhodes and Blythe made the final side from those who had been in the touring squad. Returning as captain for the first time since the 1902 series was Archie McLaren. Familiar faces in Fry, Tildesley, Hurst, Jessop and wicketkeeper Lilly were also back. The final spot went to debutant George Thompson, a right-arm medium fast bowler from Northamptonshire. Tom Hayward was left out due to concerns over his knee, whilst fast bowlers Ralph and Brearley were left out as well, as it was not expected for the pitch to be conducive to that type of bowling. This was due to the weather conditions. Rain had started falling the day before the test and continued through the night. Another shower passed by at 11am, just before play was due to commence. As such, the start of the game was delayed, with much sawdust required in order for the pitch to be playable. It took until 5pm for the toss to be made, with Noble successful. He chose to bat, hoping to take some advantage when the pitch was still at its most soaked, as when it began to dry it would be at its most difficult. He opened with Bardsley and Cotter, with Cotter promoted in the hope he could hit quick runs. The English opened with the left arm as Blythe and Hurst. The Cotter experiment failed quickly when he was caught at mid-off for two off Blythe. Armstrong replaced him, but the Australians were soon two down when Hurst caught the edge of Bardsley's bat, where McLaren took an excellent catch at slip. The Australians were now two for seven. Trumper came in at number four. The pair ran some quick singles, but the light continued to fade. 
At 5.30, the batsman successfully appealed against the light, the day ending with the Australians on 2 for 22. Despite more overnight rain, day 2 began on time at 11am. Hurst and Blythe continued from the previous evening and soon had the early breakthrough, with Blythe having Trumper caught at mid-off for 10. He was replaced by Noble. As two of the most experienced players in English conditions, Armstrong and Noble played watchfully, trying to hit the ball as late as possible to account for movement. Armstrong looked the most comfortable of any batsman and looked to be setting up for a good score before a good ball from Hurst bowled in for 24. The Australian score now stood at 4 for 46. From here, no batsman could get themselves settled as the two left-arm bowlers set about dismantling the innings. Gregory could only manage a single, whilst Ransford was out for a duck. McCartney joined Noble, but soon afterwards the Australian captain was dismissed, caught by Jessifoff Blythe for 15. The final three wickets could only manage to add 16 more runs as the Australian innings came to an end just over an hour's play on the day. McCartney stayed undefeated on 10, but the Australian total of 74 was an exceedingly disappointing one. Blythe and Hurst bowled unchanged, with Blythe claiming 6 wickets and Hurst 4. The English response started poorly. After a maiden to McLaren first up by debutante Witty, Hobbs was trapped LBW first ball from a McCartney Yorker. He was replaced by Tildesley. The two moved the score on slowly, but when it reached 13, McCartney struck once again, having McLaren shopping on for five. Emphasising the unlucky nature of the score, new batsman Fry was then bowled by a fast one from McCartney for a golden duck. He was replaced by Jones. No further calamities befell the English before lunch, although they could only add a further four runs to go to the break at three for 17. However, the lunch break gave the pitch additional time to dry. Whilst it wasn't a good pitch, it was now a bit easier than early in the day. As such, Tildesley and Jones were able to rebuild the innings. The Australian fielding was good, but the two bats were able to turn the strike over regularly whilst also playing big shots when the Australians overpitched. The score moved past 50, and they were close to getting the deficit down to single digits before Jones was caught behind off Armstrong for 28. Once again, England lost two wickets for no runs when O'Connor bowled Tildesley for 24. Half the English side was now out with the score on 61. The heroes of the famous match of the Oval in 1902 then combined in Jessup and Hurst. Jessup batted as everyone expected, playing big shots. He particularly went after Armstrong, but did look like he could get out at any time. He was lucky to survive a drop chance by Ransford on the boundary, but otherwise changed the momentum of the innings. He was out for 22 after only 20 minutes to the crease, bowled by Armstrong, but he had taken England into the lead with the side now sitting at 6 for 90. The other English batsmen couldn't follow his example, though. Rhodes joined Hurst, and the two Yorkshiremen batted very slowly, taking the total past 100 before Hurst was trapped LBW by Armstrong. Lily suffered the same fate to be out for a duck, leaving the English at 8 for 107. Thompson added 6 before he was run out, whilst Blythe was the last man out for 1. Rhodes ended up 15 not out, as the English posted 121. Armstrong was the pick of the bowlers, claiming his best test figures of 5 for 27, whilst McCartney also had 3 wickets. After the tea break, Australia still had just over an hour to bat in their second innings. Trailing by 47, Noble and McCartney set about trying to get through to stumps without taking risks. McCartney didn't last long though, trapped LBW by Blythe for one. Soon after, Noble departed when he was splendidly caught low down at short leg by Jones off Hurst. The Australians were now 2 for 16, still trailing by 31. However, at this point, Ransford and Gregory came together and on the improving wicket, looked the most comfortable any batsman had done in the game to that point. Gregory especially used all his experience to play the ball late and find gaps to turn the scoreboard over. He was well supported by Ransford. Together, they were able to erase the deficit and take Australia into the lead by 20 runs when stumps were called due to bad light, with Ransford on 28 and Gregory 26. The final day of the match started on time despite an overnight storm. 
Once again, Blythe and Hurst started, but they were off their lengths to begin with, and the batsman took advantage, moving the score into the 90s after three quarters of an hour at the crease. However, when he had reached 43, Gregory skied a long hop from Blythe up towards square leg. Thompson ran around for mid-on and took the catch. The Australians were now 3 for 97, leading by 50, and still had Trumper and Armstrong to come. However, at this point, the Australians collapsed. Trumper could only manage the single before being taken at short leg off Blythe. He was replaced by Bardsley. The score moved past 100 before Ransford, who had also managed to make 43, was bowled off his pads by Blythe. On the very next ball, new batsman Armstrong hit a ball straight to cover to be out for a golden duck. When Carter fell to Hurst for one, Australia had lost five wickets for nine runs. Cotter joined Bardsley at seven for 106. He hit out, including launching a six over the ropes, was in out next ball trying to repeat the stroke for 15, whilst Bardsley was out to Hurst for six. The final pair of O'Connor and Whitty managed to add 26 runs and take the score past 150, but then O'Connor was caught behind off Hurst for 13, ending the Australian innings on 151. Other than five overs, Blythe and Hurst had done all the bowling. Both claimed five wickets in innings to finish with 11 and 9 for the match, respectively. The Australian lead was only 104, but on such a pitch, it could have been a winning total. The English opened with two men who had been out for Golden Ducks in the first innings, in Hobbs and Fry. Both men had managed to avoid pairs, and then set about chasing down the total. Hobbs was the dominant of the two. He often stood in front of his stumps and encouraged the bowlers to bowl for LBWs, but in his innings his timing was impeccable, clipping the ball off his leg for easy runs. Fry was a lot more ill at ease, particularly against Armstrong, but eventually got into the flow of the innings. The 50-run partnership was raised, and the two kept reducing the runs required with ease. Eventually, with victory close at hand, Hobbs struck McCartney for three boundaries in an over, bringing up his half-century in the process, whilst Fry finished the match with the four-to-square leg. Hobbs ended up 62 not out, whilst Fry finished on 35, as England claimed a 10-wicket win and took a 1-0 lead in the Ashes. Coupled with the earlier two-match results, the win in the first test gave the English public the belief that the Australian side was no good, and that England would easily be able to regain the Ashes. However, that reckoned without the leadership of Noble. A stickler for team discipline, he made sure that his side was as well prepared for matches as any captain who'd come before him. He studied opposition batsmen carefully, and set fields to block their favourite shots. He was also a master at knowing which bowler was the right one to bowl in each situation, and he was well supported with advice from his wicketkeeper Hanson Carter. He made sure the team was always focused in the field, and that led to no easy runs. Once, when McCartney was fielding on the boundary and started chatting to a woman over the fence, Noble moved him into the slips to ensure he was giving his full attention to the game. This focus would pay dividends as the tour progressed. Two rain-affected draws followed the first tests against Leicestershire and Cambridge University, with Trumper scoring his first century of the tour against the latter. The final two games before the second test at Lords were wins to Australia, providing them with momentum. A six-wicket victory against Hampshire was dominated by 13 wickets in the match to Labour, whilst the Australians won a low-scoring game against Somerset by two wickets, with Labour taking another seven in the match. With Labour's form too hard to ignore, he was brought into the second test side, whilst McAllister was also brought in to strengthen the batting. Out went Whitty and O'Connor. On the other hand, English selection was the shambles. Despite having been victorious in the opening test, they elected to make five changes. One was forced, as Fry was dealing with business concerns. He was replaced by Hayward, who defied doctor's orders and played on a still-injured knee. Despite taking 11 wickets in the previous match, Blythe was out, with doctors saying he should not play due to epilepsy, although he did appear for Kent in a match concurrent to the test. Jessup and Thompson were also dropped. Their spots were taken by right-arm off-break bowler Ralph, who had last played against Australia in 1903-04, right-arm medium-fast bowler Schofield Hay, who had last played against Australia in 1905, and debutant left-arm all-rounder John King. 
The final change was made on the morning of the match, with George Gunn preferred to Rhodes. Fast bowler Walter Brealey, who had missed out on a selection in the first test, declined to play in the second. This meant the English went into the game without a right-arm fast bowler. The English press and public were scathing of the selections. They grew even more scathing due to the nature of the Lord's pitch. After rain over the previous days, the pitch was a slow one where extra pace would have been valuable. Noble clearly saw something he liked in the pitch, so much so that when he won the toss he made the rare decision to bowl first. Surrey pair Hayward and Hobbs opened for the English, whilst Laver and McCartney commenced for the Australians. Hobbs started the more spryly of the two bats, scoring 19 of the first 23 runs before Laver claimed in court behind. He was replaced by Tildesley. The two experienced campaigners then dug in on a pitch that was causing some difficulties. Hayward batted slowly, taking 50 minutes to score 16 runs, but just as he was looking comfortable, he was out to an excellent legside stumping by Carter off Laver. Gunn came in next, but could only manage one before he walked in front of his stumps and was trapped LBW by Laver. The English were now in trouble at 3 for 44. However, the debutant King then joined Tildesley and the two were able to make it to lunch without further loss. Following the break, the two batsmen built a sound partnership. Laver was steady at one end, but Cotter was bowling erratically, particularly as he was struggling to get his bowling arm high. He was replaced by Noble, who managed to bowl much tighter. The two batsmen took the score past 100, and when they looked like to be getting on top, Tildesley, who had been walking across his wicket, was trapped LBW for 46 by Laver, having batted for over two hours. He'd shared a 79 runs partnership with King, taking the score now to 4 for 123. The English captain replaced him, but he also struggled to score, taking half an hour before he registered his first run. He could only manage seven, though, before Noble got his first wicket, having his opposite number caught by Armstrong. Hurst joined King, who soon after took the score past 150 and brought up his own half-century. He looked the most comfortable of the batsmen, but when he reached 60, he was caught a point off a returning cotter. He batted for close to three hours and hit six boundaries in compiling his knock. Following tea, Hurst resumed in partnership with Jones at 6 for 175. The pair took the score to 199 before Jones played back to a fast full ball from Cotter and was bowled for eight. Hurst followed six runs later when, having compiled 31 runs with a mixture of cuts and pulls, he chopped the ball back onto his stumps, giving Cotter his fourth wicket. This left the English at eight for 205, with Ralph and Lily at the crease. Ralph was content to hold up his end, but Lily attacked, being particularly damaging against Cotter. He hit multiple boundaries off the fast bowler in quick time, with his driving being the highlight. The two men put on 53 for the ninth wicket before Ralph was out for 17, caught by Armstrong off Noble. The final pair managed to take the score under 269, with Lily first striking a close fielding Cotter off the bowling of Armstrong, before he was last out for 47, giving Noble his third wicket. Cotter claimed the most wickets with four, although he had been expensive, whilst Laver and Noble claimed three apiece. There was still 15 minutes left of the day. Seemingly a man with a sense of humour, Noble opened the Australian innings with Laver and McAllister. The two men, who loathed each other, managed to see Australians through to stumps on 17, trailing by 252 after an encouraging first day's play. A huge crowd arrived for a gloomy day too. The pitch, however, was dead and very easy for batting. Despite this, Laver could only add a single run to his overnight score before he was bowled by Hurst of 14. This brought Bardsley to decrease. Whilst an eye opener McAllister defended, Bardsley was happy to go on the attack, taking particularly to Hurst, who was not bowling with his usual control. At the other end, Ralph was steady without being threatening. The two batsmen managed to take the score past 50 and push towards 100. However, when McAllister had managed 22, King was brought on and he was trapped in front. He had shared a 66-run stand with Bardsley, who departed soon after, chopping on to the accurate Ralph for a well-made 46. The Australians were now 3 for 90, with Armstrong and Ransford at the crease. Neither batsman looked particularly comfortable despite the placid pitch. 
they managed to take the score past 100, but were separated when Armstrong edged Ralph behind to be out for 12. This brought Trumper out at 4 for 112. The English were now on top, and King was bowling well. He managed to get Ranser to edge to McLaren at slip on 13, but the English captain dropped the chance, allowing a single. Later that same over, a simple chance off Trumper was missed as well. With the opportunity to take a firm grasp of the match loss, the English now started to wilt. Ransford especially took advantage, unleashing a series of square drives either side of point to the boundary. Trumper also found the cover boundary on numerous occasions, so much so that the Australian score had risen to 170 at lunch. Ransford brought up his half-century after the break, was then dropped a second time, this occasion by the wicketkeeper Lilly. The score rose to the brink of 200 before Trumper was out, caught it slip-off Ralph for 28. Soon after, Ransford was dropped again, this time on 61 by Jones. Noble settled in and looked immovable, whilst Ransford continued to bat with confidence. Neither Hurst nor Hay troubled the batsman in any way, with Ralph remaining the only consistent bowler. The two batsmen put on 71 runs, and Ransford was into the 90s when Noble departed, caught behind off Ralph for 32. Gregory came to the creeks at 6 of 279, and was present as Ransford brought up his maiden test century to well-deserved applause from the crowd. Ransford dominated a 48-run stand with Gregory, who was out for 14 with a score at 317, giving Ralph his fifth wicket of the innings. Cotter was then run out with addition to the score, hitting a ball to point and setting off for a suicidal single. Ransford, unflustered by losing partners, took his score into the 140s whilst McCartney held up the other end. When he departed for five, Carter added a quick seven before he was the last man out with the score at 350. Ransford was undefeated on 143, having batted for just over four hours and hitting 21 boundaries, with his innings compared favourably with Trumpers at the same ground back in 1899. Hurst claimed the final two wickets to finish with three, but had been expensive, whilst Ralph had gone under two runs and over whilst claiming his first five-wicket haul. Facing a deficit of 81, England still had 25 minutes left in the day to bat. They again opened with Hobbs and Hayward. Noble started with Laver and Cotter, but then quickly turned to himself and Armstrong. On the last ball of the day, Hobbs managed to hit Armstrong back to the bowler to be out for nine. Hayward was not out five, as England ended day two on one for 16. The wicket remained placid as it had been for the rest of the tests at the start of the third day. Most expected England to be able to bat long enough to take the result beyond doubt. However, a combination of bad batting and good bowling would seem that view turned on its head. The day started poorly for the home side. Tildesley, who had joined Hayward at the start of the day, was outstumped by Carter after being beaten in flight by Armstrong. The next batsman, Gunn, was then out for a duck in the same over when he was bowled. With only a run further added, Hayward was run out for six. The English had lost three wickets for one run and now in dire straits at four for 23. First innings top scorer King then combined with Jones to take the score past 30, but King became Armstrong's fourth victim when he was bowled for four. When Hurst was bowled by a splendid ball from Armstrong, the Victorian leg break bowler had five wickets and the English win disarray at six for 41. McLaren joined Jones and the current and previous English captain steadied the innings somewhat. They handled Armstrong comfortably, so much so that he was eventually taken off, with Laver and Cotter being tried again. The two managed to double the score before Noble turned to himself. For the second time in the match, he managed to dismiss his opposite number, bowling McLaren for 24. Lilly came in and batted in his usual aggressive style, but lost Jones with a score on 90 when he was trapped LBW by Labour for 24. Lilly continued to hit, but lost Ralph with a score on 101, with Armstrong returning to bowling for three. The final pair managed to add 20 runs before Hay was run out, ending the innings on 121, leaving Lilly not out 25. The English could only muster a 41-run target for the Australians. Armstrong was lauded for his excellent bowling, with his 6-35 beating his best bowling figures that he achieved in the previous test. There was little trouble in the Australians chasing down the total. 
Bardsley was caught behind for a duck off Ralph, although there was controversy as to whether the catch was taken cleanly. But McCartney and Gregory managed to chase down the target without any more difficulty, giving the Australians a nine-wicket win and levelling the series. Much was made in the press regarding the English selections, particularly due to the age of the players, with only Hobbs being under 30, seen as a key reason for the defeat. This match marked the final time both Jones and Haywood would appear in a test for England. Jones was unfortunate he was never able to translate his county form into the test arena, only having a top score of 34 across 12 tests, as well as his illness on the previous tour preventing him from leading his side against Australia. Haywood was a more substantial loss. 29 of the 35 tests he had played were against Australia and, in a rare occurrence for the time, he actually averaged more against them than he had against the week in South Africa. Over his test career, only Jackson and Ranji averaged more against Australia than he had of those who had played 10 or more tests, whilst no one had scored more runs. He would continue to play county cricket until 1914, forming an outstanding partnership with Jack Hobbs, and became the second man after WG Grace to score 100 first-class centuries. This is the end of part one of our episode covering the 1909 Tour of England. Part two, where we will see how the series will play out, will be out next week. Thank you for listening. New episodes of Endless Summons will be released fortnightly. Please subscribe to be notified of new releases. You can also follow us on Twitter at pod underscore endless, and you can email us at endlesssummerpod at gmail.com.